Church. Good to be back with you folks again. Didn't mean to bring that up here with me. Our subject today is the great time of trouble. Is it something to worry about? To cry about? Or perhaps to sing about? Trouble was written all over her freckled face. I want to go to heaven by the resurrection route, she said. Fleeing to the mountains during the time of trouble isn't for me. She blurted out her comment during a class on end time events at one of our Adventist colleges. It was early in the semester before the professor had had the opportunity to speak much about the good news of last day events. 
Her apprehension, I think, echoes the sentiments of many Adventist youth, and I might add the not-so-youthful, in various parts of the world whenever end-time events are talked about. One Seventh-day Adventist religion professor, this is some years back now, decided to poll his students, and they came from all over the world, about their views and attitudes regarding events at the end of the world. The anonymous responses were not heartening. 56% expressed fright over last day events. 41% echoed the young lady's candid remark that I quoted earlier. They would rather die, they said, than go through the time of trouble. 49% expressed worry about the pre-advent judgment. Asked if they would be saved if they died today, 50% responded that they were not sure. Yet 88% claimed to know Christ as a personal friend. A rather stunning response from a cross-section of Adventist college students. Now, as you might expect, though Adventist youth represent different countries and cultures, they are in substantial agreement on the prophetic precursors of the time of trouble. That is, they understand the events that must happen. However, their perspectives differ. American youth emphasize the prophetic significance of the Christian right and its political agenda, directed as it is at replacing separation of church and state with cooperation of church and state. Such objectives they regard as necessary to passage of a national Sunday law. Students from Eastern Europe speak, spoke of attempts by former state churches to squelch the Protestant witness while seeking to regain the official status that they had enjoyed before communism took over. Western European Adventist youth referred to attempts by elements within the European Federation and by the Vatican to secure passage of a Sunday law. African students pointed to tribalism as a harbinger of the time of trouble, an apt observation since thousands of Adventist Rwandans had been killed in the continuing tribal conflicts and 100,000 Adventists were at that time scratching their day-to-day -day existence out in refugee camps. Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian Adventist youth experienced another form of tribalism, no less lethal to its victims. Adventists from Islamic states astutely added Western secularism to the end-time scenario, crediting it with fueling antipathy towards any Christian witness. The ecumenical movement, both institutional and charismatic, came in for mention, as did the prestige and political clout of the Roman Catholic Church on the world scene. Not neglected were the New Age movement and spiritism in various guises. One would expect this variety to surface among the membership of a world church. And undoubtedly, these and other issues will find their places in the end time scenario. What about us? Should we join these fearful youth in their, in their wish to escape the time of distress, as the NIV puts it, or the time of trouble, as the King James Version renders it? Surely it would be difficult to exaggerate the fearsome events soon break, to break upon the world. Probation closes as Christ's mediation is finished in heaven, and that development means that, and I quote, Okay, there it goes. 
the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor, a much misunderstood and therefore terrifying reference from the book Great Controversy, page 614. As the Spirit of God is withdrawn, and I now resume quoting from Great Controversy, Satan will plunge the inhabitants of the earth into one great final trouble. As the angels of God cease to hold in check the fierce winds of human passion, all the elements of strife will be let loose. The whole world will be involved in a ruin more terrible than that which came upon Jerusalem of old. A single angel destroyed all the firstborn of the Egyptians and filled the land with mourning. The same destructive power exercised by holy angels when God commands will be exercised by evil angels when he permits. There are forces only waiting to spread desolation everywhere. The angel of mercy is holding, folding her wings, preparing to step down from the throne and leave the world to the control of Satan, who we're told in, second, uh, in Great Controversy and in other places will impersonate Christ. It is the time of Armageddon, the final pre-advent battle in the Great Controversy, when Satan seeks to annihilate those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, as we read in Revelation 12, 17. Without doubt, God's followers do indeed face a time such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then, as Daniel 12, 1 predicts. But to agonize over the, this segment of the verse to the exclusion of its wonderful promise, is to cultivate an insanity guaranteed to destroy one's Christian experience, if not to send you to the funny farm. What is this liberating promise? I'm going to share it with you along with nine others that should change or at least balance your perspective on the time of trouble. And I'm going to share a lot of points, a lot of references and stuff, so you don't need to take any notes because I have given the deacons a half-page handout with all of it on there for you to take home. So you'll get that as you leave um, later. Okay, number one. The time of trouble is a time of deliverance for God's people. At that time, the time of trouble, says Daniel 12.1, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then, but at that time, your people... Everyone whose name is found written in the book, that's the book of life, will be delivered. So, yes, greatest time of trouble ever, but also greatest deliverance ever. The whole world, according to Revelation 16, 14, will unite to destroy that faithful remnant who refuse to worship anyone other than their creator, Revelation 14, 7. But God stands with them against the world. Can you say amen? So, who should worry? The wicked, that's who. God even preserved a record of deliverance for our encouragement. Contained in chapters 3 and 6 of the book of Daniel are two prototypes of the time of trouble, both involving worship and both containing a death decree. In one, the worship of the golden image on, Dura on Dura's plain was commanded. In the other, worship of King Darius. Three Hebrew youth refused to bow to the image and were thrown into a superheated furnace. Daniel was thrown into the den of hungry lions. It is not coincidental that the only ones to suffer in these stories were the bad guys, the perpetrators, who themselves were executed, 
Daniel 3.22 and 6.24. Likewise, in the end time, it is those who judge the saints worthy of death for their misguided loyalty who themselves are executed. The saints are exonerated. Number two, the verdict of the pre-advent judgment is in favor of the saints. In vision, Daniel sees the end time coalition of evil, a reincarnated Babylonian conglomerate, speak against the Most High and oppress his saints. That's in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7. But the Ancient of Days intervenes. The court of heaven pronounces judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, verse 21. Why then should we fear what will happen when our names come up in the pre-advent judgment? There are, of course, reasons. If we are followers of Christ only in name, if we come to judgment flaunting our works, if we come with the baggage of unconfessed and unforsaken sin, but if we are indeed Christ, if we have accepted his death as payment in full for our sins, if we cling to Christ as the sole provider of our salvation, we have nothing to lose. Amen? Amen. Number three, the plagues will fall on the wicked, not on God's people. God gives a final gracious invitation to his children who are in Babylon, called by John the Revelator, the mother of prostitutes, in chapter 17, verse 5, because she has united herself with the kings of the earth in an adulterous church-state union. Come out of her, my people, so that she will not share in her sins, so that she will not receive any of her plagues. Chapter 18, verse 4. The inspired prophet calls the union adulterous because the church's only lawful bridegroom is Jesus Christ. When God's people look to the state for support, then there's a problem. They should be looking to their, to their God. It is this prophetic scenario that sparks concern among American Adventists as they view the program of the so-called Christian right, which seeks re reformation by legislation rather than through power from on high, which is Christ promised bestow on his disciples in all ages in Luke 24, 19. It was such a union as this that historically became drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony of Jesus in Revelation 17, 6 and 12, 17. It doesn't take a theologian's analysis of prophetic passages to identify the perpetrator of centuries of such persecution. A reading of any textbook on the history of Western civilization will suffice. Again, God comforts his children by referring to his intercession in history. During the plagues that fell on ancient Egypt, God said, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Likewise, as the plagues fall again in end time, God will protect his own. Listen, while the wicked are dying from hunger and pestilence, angels will shield the righteous and supply their wants. To him that walketh righteously is the promise, bread shall be given him, his waters shall be sure. Number four, the time of trouble will be a time of rejoicing for the righteous. Excuse me. During the time of trouble, the persecuted saints will enjoy an intimate relationship with Christ. They may indeed, some of them, be in prison, but angels 
will come to them in lonely cells, bringing light and peace from heaven. The prison will be as a palace for the rich in faith dwell there. And the gloomy walls will be lighted up with heavenly light as when Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises at midnight in the Philippian dungeon. As the judgments of God fall as plagues on the wicked of Babylon, John the Revelator portrays a scene of happiness in heaven and on earth. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Chapter 19 records the response in heaven. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. As the illicit union of church and state is destroyed, the great multitude loyal to God shout, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Eternally happy and secure will be those who unite with their lawful bridegroom, Jesus Christ. What, in contrast, will be the status of the wicked? Those who have, under her urging, persecuted the saints will at last, it says, hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin. Bring her to ruin? The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Thus, the Babylonian conglomerate, that great church-state confederation of end time that has hated God's people, will receive not only plagues from God, but also a devastating divorce. Those who have been supporting her suddenly realize it was a lost cause, and they, they turn on her. She gets destruction from her illicit lovers. So surely, if one must fear the time of trouble, one side is ultimately, infinitely, I should say, less to be feared than the other. And the one side shall at last rejoice. Number five, no child of God will give up their faith in the time of trouble. The time of trouble is not to be likened to a funeral. Rather, it's part of a wedding day, the hours that immediately precede the bridegroom's coming to receive his bride. We've all been to weddings. We've heard the minister say something like, if anyone here knows any reason why this marriage should not occur, let him speak now or forever be silent, right? Well, speak, the congregation of the damned do. Every sin the bride has ever committed is recited in lurid detail. Remember the Bible calls Satan the accuser of her brethren? So what does the bridegroom do? Is the bride to be left standing at the altar? No, he does what any bridegroom worth his salt would do. He stands up for his bride. But what about us having to stand without an intercessor in that great time of trouble? Isn't there great danger that the bride will turn back while walking down the aisle? Not at all. According to Revelation 7, 1-4, the bride has already been sealed before she enters the great time of trouble. What does that mean? The seal is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. The bride's mind cannot be changed. She is secure in her bridegroom's love. 
With Paul, she can say, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, living without a mediator does not mean living without Christ. What we need to remember is at that point in time, we don't need a mediator. Every sin, every case has been settled. We still have a Savior. Has not Christ, our bridegroom, promised us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Hebrews 13, 5. Has he not pledged, I will be with you always to the very end of the world? Matthew 28, 20. Obviously, Christ's bride will never have to live without him. He will always be with his bride through the Holy Spirit. But someone might be thinking, is not the Holy Spirit to be withdrawn from the world? Yes, but only from the world. The Holy Spirit is never withdrawn from Christ's bride. Rather, the Holy Spirit comes with unprecedented power to accompany the bride through closing events, including the time of trouble. So although the time of trouble is the worst ever, the power of the Holy Spirit is the greatest ever. Can you say amen? amen. Number six, mighty angels will protect the righteous. From last day events, pages 266 and 267, it is impossible to give any idea of the experience of the people of God who shall be alive upon the earth when celestial glory and a repetition of the persecutions of the past are blended. They will walk in the light proceeding from the throne of God. By means of angels, there will be constant communication between heaven and earth. In the midst of the time of trouble that is coming, God's chosen people will stand unmoved. Satan and his host cannot destroy them, for angels that excel in strength will protect them. Again, the biblical record assures us, as did Jacob, who clung to the mighty one, the righteous, sensing their great need, will cling to Christ. And as the wrestling ones urge their petitions before God, the veil separating them from the unseen seems almost withdrawn. The heavens glow with the dawning of eternal day, and like the melody of angel songs, the words fall upon the ear, stand fast to your allegiance, help. Number seven, a bow of promise will encircle God's weary soldiers. Listen, Christ, the almighty victor, holds out to his weary soldiers a crown of immortal glory, and his voice comes from the gates ajar. Lo, I am with you. Be not afraid. I am acquainted with your sorrows. I have borne your griefs. You are not warring against untried enemies. I have fought the battle in your behalf, and in my name you are more than conquerors. The precious Savior will send help just when we need it. The way to heaven is consecrated by his footprints. Every thorn that wounds our feet has wounded his. Every cross that we are called to bear, he has borne before us. The Lord permits conflicts to prepare the soul for peace. The time of trouble is a fearful ordeal for God's people, but it is the time for every believer to look up, and by faith he may see the bow of promise encircling him. Number eight, all enemies of the righteous will be destroyed. Crafty Caiaphas justified killing Jesus by saying, it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish, John eleven fifty. 50. 
So in the end time, it will be urged, it is better for them, God's people, to suffer than for the whole nation to be thrown into confusion and lawlessness. As Christ did, so we will face a death decree. Christ died in place of his bride, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he died so that no son or daughter of God would ever again have to die. However, he will not force anyone to choose life. And so it is, as the revelator describes, that the avenging angel who accompanies Christ on his rescue mission to earth swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. That's Revelation 14, 19. Number nine, the Savior will come to take his children home. The revelator draws two graphic word pictures of Christ's return for his bride. In chapter 14, he comes on a white cloud as the Son of Man with a crown on his head. The crown, in this case, is the word Stephanos in the Greek, a laurel wreath of victory that such as was worn by the winner of an Olympic game. In this scenario, Christ comes as a fellow human with a laurel wreath that evokes memories of his victory at Calvary on behalf of his bride. In stark contrast, in Revelation 19, John pictures Christ on a white horse leading the armies of heaven, verse 11. On his head are diadem crowns, such as are worn only by those of royal heritage. Here he comes as king of kings, verse 16, to destroy the enemies of his bride. So here we have two significant scenes. In the first, Jesus comes as a fellow human who has been through the greatest time of trouble that any human has endured. The revelator here emphasizes our Savior's understanding of our struggle in the time of trouble. He comes to take us home. In the second scene, Christ comes also as God to defeat the alliance of evil that seeks to assassinate his bride, that is, his faithful remnant people. What a rescue mission. Thus it is that Christ implements the verdict of the pre-advent judgment. His enemies die, his bride is delivered. And lastly, number 10, the translated saints shall sing a wondrous, wondrous song of deliverance. Imagine the scene. We stand at last with Christ, Jesus on Mount Zion, Revelation 14.1, described in Joel 2.32 as a place of deliverance. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. You could also refer to Isaiah 11, 10 to 12, and Micah 4, 6 to 8. In the New Testament, Mount Zion is in heaven. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, Hebrews 12, 22. And there those who have gone through the time of trouble shall sing a new song before the throne, 14, 3. No others can sing it, for it is the song of their experience, an experience such as no other company have ever had. Notice the focus of this new song recorded in Revelation 15. Yeah, Revelation 15. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now picture yourself in a great choir a million or so years into eternity. You have accompanied Jesus to a new world, 
for we shall follow the lamb whithersoever he goes, Revelation 14, 4. There, before overflowing grandstands, the choir sings, and how it sings. And that singing tells us something wonderful about the great time of trouble, and that is this. If it's worth singing about so long after it happened, it must be worth going through. Amen? Yes, the greatest time of trouble ever. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But the greatest deliverance ever. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Now there, there is something to sing about. Amen? And maybe a little practice now would keep our eyes focused on the right verses. In closing, let me read one more time those stirring words of Revelation 15, 3 and 4. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. It's long been recognized that Psalm 91 is a passage that has a lot of meaning and comfort for God's people in the end of time. And someone has put it, the whole chapter to music. And so I've asked Destiny if she'll sing it for us at this time. And after that, we'll sing our song together as a congregation. But I would encourage you to pull out your Bible in front of you. I think it's a parallel Bible. Turn to the Psalm 91, and the New King James Version is what Destiny will be singing. place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High your habitation. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague 
come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot because he has set his love upon me. Therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Okay, everybody, let's stand. I'm going to sing number 520, He Hideth My Soul.
our heads. Dear Father in heaven, as we look out at the world around us now, it's fearful. And we know from your word that it's going to get worse. Without your promises, we would be really, really in a pickle. But we thank you, Lord, for reminding us that you've got things under control, that you love us, that you're protecting us, that what you did for Daniel and his three friends and others in the Bible, you can do for us. Amen. And so, Lord, help us to take our eyes off of the worries and off the fears and put them on to you. And, and then guide us and keep us safe as we make our way through to the kingdom, and we can't wait for it to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.